0: If you didn't turn yet, get to Matthew chapter 9. is where we're going to be in our text this morning. Matthew chapter 9. i got a quote for you to kick off this new thing the Lord is doing among us. It's a quote that some of you might recognize if you share my alma mater. Nothing of eternal significance happens apart from prayer. You know who said that? Jerry Falwell Sr. Nothing of eternal significance ever happens apart from prayer. Now, there's a few ways you could go with that. You could, you could think that prayer is just this quick fix to everything you want in life, but that's not what it means. He's getting at this emphasis of, if you long to see God flex his power among us, If you long to see God work His eternal wonders among us, if you want to see conversions and baptisms, if you want to see a maturing sense of character and conduct among us, if you want to see healings and revivals, if you want to see restored marriages and addicts set free, if you want to see leaders identified and appointed and missionaries called and sent out, we need to be convinced of and dedicated to our part in that. Prayer. Prayer. And by the way, if you think prayer is another work, prayer is actually just an act of faith asking God. So we don't bolster ourselves up. I'm a prayer warrior. No, you're just really good at believing God more than yourself, right? So that's really good. There's this powerful dynamic in the kingdom of God that I can't comprehend, and it doesn't... Like, I, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's just this truth. God is not limited by us, right? There's nothing that we can do and say, well, I'm not, God, you're stuck. You don't get to move because I'm not doing this or saying that, right? Like, like God's not that way. He is infinite. If he, he can use donkeys to talk. Come on. Like, like, there's no laws that are in place that he can't overcome, right? So, so God is this infinite, unlimited being, and he doesn't need us. Well, that feels good. (laughs) He doesn't require us to do his thing. Like, he could just do it, right? If we believe in this infinitely sovereign and all-powerful God, which is what we do, it's what we find here. And yet, for some reason... God has decided to involve us. He has decided to invite us in to partner with Him in the works that He wants to do such that He's chosen if if we aren't willing to cooperate in prayer and intercede for things, He will relent. He will refuse. Somehow, there's this dynamic where where. Even though he's infinitely holy, he's decided to bring us in on all that he wants to do. And Augustine kind of explained it this way, and, and you might have read this in some of your notes in the, in the bulletin this morning. He said, without God, we cannot. Which I'm, I'm totally for. That's what I grew up believing. Like, totally, yep, I'm right there. And then there's a second part. Without us, he will not. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not comfortable with that. But it's the dynamic of the kingdom. It's this reality where without God, we know we cannot do anything of eternal significance. And yet without us, God's like, no, I'm not going not gonna to really, really really, do it. He will not. He wants us to will and to want him. And in that, he works out his good pleasure. I don't know how else to explain that than to just say that that's the truth of the kingdom. And so our, our highest hope, my highest hope for us is that we be faithful to do our part in what God has invited us to do in the kingdom, that we be faithful and fruitful of things in eternal significance, of eternal value. Joseph rightly asks us, what are we investing in? Are we investing in things that have no eternal value and will be eternally out of date? I want us to be a church that just, is just full of of eternally significant value and things going on among us that we can't say was us, but was God. And so if we're gonna be that kind of church, especially starting out this new year, we must pray. Because that's our part in this. We must pray. We must ask in faith. And so to, to help us understand and not only just to kind of know, but become convinced of prayer's part in the mission of our church, in the mission of God among the world, in order for us to not just uh, know something about prayer, to ex- but to experience it and to, to cherish it, to hopefully in a way that edifies you in your own prayer life. We're going to be in this series for the month of January called Prayerology. Uh, that is not a real word. I made it up, so don't go to a dictionary. But if you take prayer and you put ology on the end of it, you get this the study of prayer, right? Just like theology is the study of God, or eschatology is the study of end times, or uh, pneumatology, anyways, we can keep going. Prayerology, we're gonna take our time to study prayer according to God's word, and I'm actually believing this might be a January thing every year. If we're gonna believe as a value in the vibrancy of prayer, that God actually responds when we pray, then we need to center ourselves around prayer and dedicate ourselves to doing prayer every year, every day, but particularly have a, a dedicated season for it at the beginning. Because here's the thing, like you can set yourself to studying prayer and that dot do a thing you must actually pray, right? So in another sense, you can set yourself to studying God, and you can get to know him, about him, really well through this. But everything that you come to know about God is an invitation to experience him as that. If you know that he's a father, you're supposed to experience him as a father. If you know him as an all-giving provider and good protector, you're to experience him as that thing, and so, so, so when we study prayer, it's not just, all right, now I've got a bunch of head knowledge. It's like, hey, let's actually do this thing called prayer. And so I'm, I'm, I am officially calling, as the pastor of this church, our church family to a dedicated season of relentless pursuit of God through prayer. Um, some people well, why don't you do that every Sunday for every week? And you're probably right, okay? But, but there were seasons where there was strong dedication to prayer and then there were seasons of, of feasting, of fasting and feasting. And so it's, it's, it's the life of the Christian, the seasons. So I'm calling us to the season for the next 21 days starting tomorrow in, in this thing called hunger for God. And you're going to hear more about that at the end. And I think it's going to, again, it's going to be something that we're doing every, every January for 21 days, seeking the Lord, hungering for Him through prayer. Now, uh, I want to do what I can to, actually I can't do this, God's got to do it, convince you of adding into your prayer life a nice little supplement called fasting. I'm, I'm asking the Lord today to convince you To dedicate yourself to prayer and to reinforce it and intensify it with fasting for the next 21 days. Now, don't get overwhelmed. We've got a long way to go to get to understanding what fasting is. And I'll explain that it might be a little easier than you think. so, So don't get stressed out by this idea. I think all of us know well what fasting is. We know that fasting is intentionally, not like accidentally, oops, I didn't eat, it's intentionally abstaining from the consumption of food to feel the sensation of hunger for a period of time. That's as base as it gets, and it's kind of a universal definition of fasting, right? And my guess is that that's not new to you. You know what fasting is. You've you've heard about it before. Uh, It's not a new concept for you. Why? Well, first off, almost every religion in the world practices fasting. Every religion does. Even some of the most unique tribal peoples in New Guinea practice fasting. The Native Americans practiced fasting for religious purposes. Not only has it been used for religious purposes, fasting has been used in political purposes. Mahatma Gandhi, right, was one of his strategies in influencing a culture with fasting. It was used for political change. But if you haven't heard about it for religious or for political purposes, you may have definitely heard about it for health purposes. It's in the medical field too, right? Uh, Dana White, uh, which, by the way, for those who don't know, is not Vena White, the square lady on... Wheel of Fortune? Dana, v- Vanna White, that's her. Dana White is a dude who's a president of the UFC, just recently put out a, a Facebook post saying, hey, you guys should try this thing called fasting. And then he does this video explaining how it's so great for everyone. And, and it's in the medical field too. You, you, you'll hear all sorts of health benefits of fasting, right? And I'll just read you a few of them. Fasting fights, f- uh, flights, fights inflammation. It promotes good blood sugar control, it improves blood pressure, it helps with triglycerides and cholesterol levels, it boosts brain function, which I definitely need that, it burns fat, it boosts metabolism, it promotes weight loss, it detoxes your body, and on and on and on the medical benefits go. It seems like fasting belongs to everybody, but does it belong to us, the church? Does it belong to the people of God? Well, if you were to do an overview throughout the whole book of the Bible, you would find it a lot in the Old Testament. You would find fasting often in the Old Testament uh, with the people of God, the Israelites, fasting for particular things. You would even find secular kings, pagan kings fasting. Fasting in the Old Testament most often was an expression of brokenheartedness. It was an expression of mourning, and most often it was used in an expression of desperation. Like, things aren't going the way I want, I need God to do something, so I'm going to fast and pray. It seems to be how it was used, and so let me just give you some examples. Fasting was commanded for the Day of Atonement as a sense of mourning and regret, when the sacrifice was made on the altar to atone for sin. What's ironic there is that in the text, it's not worded as fasting. It's called self-denial. Ooh, we're not good at that, are we? But it would be part of repentance. Not only that, as uh, it, part of repentance, you, when you see Jonah finally make it to, the, to Nineveh, right after he did the whole thing with the whale... He gets to Nineveh, he tells them and warns them of God's coming wrath. If they don't repent, the Ninevites repent, and they repent with fasting. It's incorporated into their repentance. We also saw it, you see it used in the Old Testament for weeping, for sadness, for mourning. So, for example, when Nehemiah, when he was in exile, and reports came about the state of Jerusalem and how the walls had been torn down, Nehemiah's response is weeping and he fasts. He is so brokenhearted and sad. He mourns and fasts and prays for several days. Not only is it used for mourning and sadness, it was used for desperate seeking, for longing for things from God. So, for example, uh, King Saul when they were getting ready to go to battle, he commanded all of his soldiers to fast, to relent from eating in hopes of victory in the war. You, you can see King Darius after, <laughs> this, this is so funny, he throws Daniel into the lion's den. He's like, all right, well, I'm going to go fast about it, right? Just don't put him in the lion's den. But anyways, so he throws him in the lion's den. He comes out and he's concerned for Daniel's life and he sets himself to fast all night long and he prays for Daniel's safety. And then, uh, if you know the story of Esther, when Mordecai uh, relays the news of Haman's plans to kill all of the Israelites or the Jews, when he relays that information to Queen Esther and, and pleads for Queen Esther to go to the king, Esther tells Mordecai to tell all the Jews to fast and pray for three whole days. And this fast, they don't eat or drink a thing for three whole days. That's like the limit and almost you're dead right? And they're fasting, seeking God's deliverance. So you you can see over and over again throughout the Old Testament, fasting was part of the people of God used in different varieties, most of them kind of on the negative spectrum of things, not like joyful response. It's like mourning, seeking, like things aren't going well and you're guilty, right? But then you get to the New Testament. You get past that divider, and the New Testament gets pretty quiet about fasting. There's only a few references. There's, there's kind of three in Jesus' teachings throughout the Gospels. There's two references to fasting in the book of Acts. And then in all of the rest of the letters, there's nothing. Nothing about fasting. There's never, specifically in the New Covenant or the New Testament, a command to fast. It's just not there. Now, there's some references to it. So how are we supposed to think about fasting? Some would say that the silence of the New Testament on fasting means that it's not for us as the new covenant people of God. They would say that it's, it's an old covenant practice, not necessary for the new, because we're under grace, we're under joy. That's not us. So they don't fast. In fact... Personally, I grew up in that theological environment where fasting was not encouraged. It wasn't talked about. It wasn't portrayed as like a spiritual discipline. It was just something old covenant. You don't got to do it, even though the Bible says. So I want to tell you that there's one text that I think is the most important passage in the Bible when it comes to us understanding fasting. And we've read it. Michael read it for us in Matthew 9. Uh, verses 15 through 17. If you can remember the context, it took us a little while to get to the text, but we got there. John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark and in Luke, the same stories counted, and, and the Pharisees are fasting too, but they notice that Jesus' disciples don't fast. Hmm. Huh. They're not not refraining. They're, 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 They're feasting it up. They don't fast. So John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, we're just noticing something. We're all not eating. The Pharisees aren't eating. They're fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Well, Jesus tells them in verse 15, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus explains why fasting is absent among his followers because there was someone present among his followers. It was Jesus. He was with them. Like how many of you, you've been to a wedding, you, you know how it goes, they have the ceremony and then they've invited you to a reception where a dinner's there and everybody's just chowing down on the buffet before the bride and the groom get there and then when they get up, all the food's gone, it's like, oh, well, the bride and groom, they don't get anything to eat. Have you, have you ever been to a wedding like that? No, that's preposterous. You wait. You wait until they do that little entrance thing and the club can't handle me right now and the, the couple comes in, right? And... And and the table's set and everybody's ready to eat because the bride and groom are there. Jesus is saying if the groom's here, we feast. The presence of God was in their midst. What else would they hunger for? It makes sense. Jesus is with them. Why why would they need to fast? The groom is here. Let's, Let's feast. Let's enjoy him. It makes sense. But Jesus doesn't stop here. There's a key sentence for us on this side of the ascension. It's at the end of verse 15. Jesus says, the last few words, then they will fast. They being his followers. Then they will fast. Well, when? What does he say? When will the followers of Jesus fast? When the bridegroom or the groom is taken away from them. Now, some th- scholars, some theologians say that that's the three days between Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, that's a quick fast, to be honest. Uh, He means that after his death and resurrection, he's going to ascend to his Father in heaven. And while he's up there and his physical presence is not down here, his disciples will fast until he comes again at his second coming. But you might say, well, didn't didn't Jesus say that he was going to be with us always? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. He said, he said that. He was going to be with us always to the end of the age. He put that at the end of the Great Commission. And then not only that, he said that we've been given a spirit, his spirit specifically, that keeps us from being orphans. So we know we have his presence in one regard, but you and I both know it's very simple for us to agree that there is going to be an infinitely greater experience of the presence of Jesus when we see him face to face. When we're finally with Him. And so we are to fast because He's up there at His Father's side. And we are to fast as we long for the fullness of Jesus' presence here on earth once again. Now, that's only verse 15. And we could be done talking about fasting and move on to our next points, but Jesus isn't done talking about fasting. He brings up a parable that you might know well. In fact, you might have heard this parable used of other things, for other points, with other truths. And here's what's funny, that's out of context. You don't get to rip a passage of scripture and say, oh, I think it means this, when Jesus is talking about fasting with these new wines and new wineskins and the new patches on the old garments. This is the parable. Look at verse 16 and 17. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth. Now, keep in mind, there's no pause or break in between what Jesus has just said. He's talking about fasting. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wines into old wineskins, otherwise the skin bursts, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Brothers and sisters, in the context of of what I, I can make sense of in this text, with fasting in view, the patch of the new cloth, the new wine, They're the new reality of the kingdom of God being among us. This new covenant, this new kingdom come. And if you try to fit that into old wineskins or onto old garments, it'll tear it all away. And in this context, the old garment and the old wineskin... Is fasting. It's the old understanding of fasting. In other words, Jesus is making a point here. He's like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll take fasting, but we're going to make it new. There's going to be something totally different about our fasting. Jesus' disciples will fast. But the fasting that they have known isn't suitable. It cannot contain the new reality of the kingdom of God breaking in and the presence of God being experienced. The old understanding of fasting will not contain the new kingdom. It's a a new kind of fasting that we do as Christians that is going to be based on this mystery that the bridegroom has come. You notice the difference there? Because the yearning and the longing of the old covenant fasting was based on the fact that the Messiah had yet to come. He hadn't come yet. But this new fasting is resting on the sure manifested reality of God's kingdom come. Our fasting isn't an expression of empty longing. Our fasting is from the first fruits of what we've already tasted, and we long for more. Yeah. In fact, I would uh, really encourage you to uh, one of the most helpful things that I've found... uh, with God's word, help me understand fasting, has been John Piper's book, A Hunger for God. I would commend it to you. In fact, it's a free audio book if you can go download it on Hoopla or something. Uh, Listen through it throughout the next 21 days. This is one of the things he says in that book. We have tasted the powers of the age to come. And our fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not experienced, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying, and we are hungry for all that is possible to have. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we've never tasted, but because we've tasted it so wonderfully and long for the fullness of it. Guys, this is, this is what accompanies a dynamic of the kingdom of God that you might hear of. I've said it before. It's the, the already and the not yet. It's the already having and the not yet but coming of the kingdom of God. We have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good and strong to save and we long for more of it. In fact, I would, I would posture to you that, that a hunger for God is integral to the life of the believer. Deeply longing for God, wanting Him above all else, loving Him above all else, craving Him, hungering for Him above all else is the basic instinct of the Christian. Amen. That's what David sang about so often. Psalm 42, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? Or what about Psalm 73? This wasn't David, this was Asaph. How do I or who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Actually, I think that may have been the sons of Korah. Don't quote me. And then we get to Psalm 84. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, my body, it cries out for the living God. You know, this is, this is one of the strange dynamics of the kingdom. Uh, when you're... Uh, you guys probably had a a pretty big feast at Christmas time, right? You've got it all on the table. You are hungry, and you know you're going to destroy this food, right? So you eat, and you consume, and you eat, and you consume. You unlatch the first belt, and you put on the, the, the looser one. You have more room. You get up, and you dance around, get the food down to the bottom. My grandpa would do that. You put the food down at the bottom. You have more room at the top. You come back and eat, and then you're full, and you can't eat anymore, that is never the case for the grace of God and the experience of God. The strongest, most mature Christians are those who are hungriest for God. It might seem, well, they eat, they eat of the things of God often, aren't there? won't they ever get satisfied and be content? No, no, that's not how it works with an inexhaustible fountain, with an infinite feast, and a glorious Lord. When you and I, when we take our stand on the finished work of God in Christ Jesus, and we begin to drink of the living water, and we begin to eat the bread of life, you only get hungrier. You only want more. Not that as if they're not satisfying, they are deeply satisfying. And it's so satisfying, and good, and eternal, you realize you were made for it, and you long for it more. That's why C.S. Lewis, in one of his letters to someone, he, he wrote this, it's the of thing you'll ever see, our best havings are wantings. Our best havings, those things that we have in the gospel, are also things that we know we want, because they're coming as well. In other words, the more satisfaction you experience from God in this world, The greater your desire will be for him in the next. The more deeply you walk with Christ, the more hungrier you get for Christ. The more homesick you get for heaven, the more you want all of the fullness of God, the more you want to be done with sin, the more you want the bridegroom to come again, The more you want the church revived and purified with the beauty of Jesus, the more you want a great awakening to God's reality in the city, and the more you want to see the light of the gospel penetrate the darkness of all the unreached peoples all around the world. It's just instinctual. The more you have God, the more you want God. So I said at the, begin- like at the beginning of these psalm quotes that the basic instinct, the, the basic craving of the Christian is, is a hunger for God. I'd say that if you don't sense any kind of craving or hunger, I would almost equate that to an appetite of love for God. If you don't sense any of that in you, any, any longing for His presence, more of His grace, more of His power, more of His kingdom to come, then, then I would really invite you to check your heart and, and, and examine it. Because I believe that we were made to long for God, and to not long for God, I think, is sin. I think it's brokenness. And so, and one of the symptoms, one of the, one of the causes of the symptoms of a deadened longing for Christ... One of the symptoms might be this. If you don't feel these strong cravings and hunger for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's probably not because you've drunken so deeply and are satisfied. Because we know the dynamic of having him more means we want more of him. Most likely it's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with so many temporary things and there's no room for the eternal. I've also was just praying through this and and had this great conviction that there might be some who would say, Yeah, I want to hunger for God, but I don't want it to be all-consuming. I don't want it to take all my stuff. I want to hunger for God, but not so hungry. Because that's just uncomfortable. Brothers and sisters. I know this well because I struggle with this in different seasons of of desiring God and then having that fade because of all trivial things and and then seeing it rekindled again. It's the seasons. And if it's you, if you have found yourself to be in a season where that, that thriving first love, that great craving for God, the longing for Him, to be so intimately involved in your life, and you to be useful and available for him and his purposes, if you found that craving is waning or is just dead, then I would encourage you with what Joel says in chapter 2. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes and return to the Lord your God. and This is the best part, because he is gracious and compassionate, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in faithful love. When you return, you're not gonna find a God. It's, a, it's about time you came back, you jerk. He's, 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 he's gonna say, I've, I've been wanting you, and as you have sought after me, I'm coming to you, right? like. Like, don't let another second be wasted with the absence of hungering for God. Long for Him. Crave Him. Hunger for God. And and I'm I'm praying that He would awaken that in us. I've seen it in our church, and I want us to have more of it. I want an unquenchable hunger for God to be awakened. And here's the thing fasting can serve to do just that. Fasting can serve to do just that. Now, I don't have time to go through all five of these in depth. But there are five things that fasting will do to serve you. Here's the first one. Fasting will examine your cravings. It'll show you what you're really longing for. Some of you are craving God's gifts more than the gift giver. Some of you have found yourself craving the appeal of man. Fasting will examine all of those cravings in your heart. Here's a second thing it'll do. Fasting will confront your masters. It'll reveal to you those things that have become a master over you. That's one of the things that Richard Foster says in his celebration of discipline. Fasting reveals the things that control us, he says. Why? Because fasting disrupts our rhythms and our habits. It forces us to go outside of the normal routine of life. Because we want to be similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, I will not be mastered by anything but Jesus. Here's a third thing fasting will do. Fasting will reveal, but not resolve, your sin. Fasting will, will reveal to you where pride reigneth. It will reveal to you anger and bitterness and jealousy. And tr- Trust me, when you're on day three and you're... And, and You'll feel it, right? Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear. If there are any of that in you, fasting will bring them to the surface. But here's the thing, fasting won't fix all of that, it'll just reveal it. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse us. Here's the fourth thing fasting will do, fasting will intensify your prayer life. In in John Piper's book, he says, fasting is like an intensifier. He says it's like an exclamation point at the end of your prayer. When you say, God, I want you and nothing more, exclamation point, fasting. And then here's the, the fifth thing fasting will do. Fasting will delight the Father. Fasting will delight the Father. Now, I want to be careful here. I think I, I do want to press in on this one just a second. God is not impressed with your suffering. He's impressed with Jesus' suffering. they not yours. But He does delight when we hunger for Him above all. One of the problems in... The Big C Church is that fasting becomes a mechanistic key to get what you want. So when I first started trying to study about fasting, I was given a book called Fasting by Jensen Franklin. I will never tell you not to read anything, um, but be careful when you read this. It started out pretty good. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then he started talking about how he would encourage his people to fast so they could get that $3 million home, or they could get that car or that job promotion, and he turned it into a mechanistic thing for prosperity of self. Fasting is never that. Fasting is simply because you long for the Father and He delights in you. And He actually, for some reason, He's pleased to move more mightily among those who are desperately dependent upon and hungry for Him. I found this in John Wesley's journal. He wrote this. There is something remarkable in the manner wherein God... God revived his work in these parts. He's in Edinburgh writing about some things happening there. A few months ago, the generality of people in this circuit were exceedingly lifeless. Samuel Megot, perceiving this, advised the society at Barnard Castle to observe every Friday with fasting and prayer. The very first Friday they met together, God broke in upon them in a wonderful manner, and his work has been increasing among them ever since. The neighboring societies or churches heard of this, agreed to follow the same rule, and soon experienced the same blessing. Is not the neglect of this plain duty, I mean fasting, ranked by our Lord with almsgiving and prayer, one general occasion of deadness among Christians? Can anyone willingly neglect it and be guiltless? Brothers and sisters... Do you crave for God? Do you hunger for Him? Is He the supreme longing of your heart? One way you can find out for sure is to set yourself to prayer and fasting for the next 21 days. Set yourself to hungering for God in prayer and fasting. And I'm asking that our church do this together because I believe that God will be most glorified among us in our church family when we are most supremely satisfied by Him. When He is the chief longing of our hearts and we have and we taste and we see and we want more. So I want to encourage you to take seriously this hunger for God for the next 21 days. I want to encourage you to consider the things that you will fast from. Now, I'm going to go in brief on some of these instructions, but in your bulletin was provided this little handout. And on this side, a hunger for God, you'll find more intense instructions. The first thing that you should consider is if you can do a full fast, obviously not from water for 21 days. We need you alive at the end of the 21 days. But determine what you can do. Some of you need to work with your medical professionals uh, to to get counsel. Um, Choose what you will fast from and how long you will do it. Some of you uh, need to choose to just fast a one meal a day. Some of you can do three for three days, right? Some of you can do all 21 days where you're only fasting from uh, uh, everything but fruits and vegetables, right? Like there's, there's different ways that you can set yourself to experiencing a different routine of life where, where you're, abs- you're abstaining from just simple good things because you want the best thing. Some of you cannot do food you cannot give up food because of health reasons. So maybe you can give up other things, right? Um, maybe, uh, uh, maybe it's just a sense of, like, entertainment. Uh, maybe you have a routine of chilling out each night, watching uh, an hour or two of TV. Maybe in the next 21 days you say, no, I'm going to set that time to seeking the Lord. Now, uh, there is a fast uh, that Paul talks about in First Corinthians seven, uh, where a husband and a wife, for a time, should uh, should uh, agree together to refrain from um, from uh, bumping bellies, and uh, I would enc- I would encourage you to consider that, right? Do it for a time, and then come back together. But here's the thing, as you're choosing what you're fasting from, keep in mind that a fast is not forfeiting something that's evil. Like fasting is not trying to cut your addiction to your phone or to YouTube shorts or to gossip, right? Like fasting is not from something evil, it's from something good. So don't choose something that you should have killed in your life a long time ago, right? Another thing that I really want to encourage you to do is make sure that, those, that your fast is deeply saturated with prayer, right? You can pray and not fast, and your prayers be effective, but you cannot fast and not pray. If you fast but you don't pray, you're just not eating. So when you fast, use every growl, every ache, every discomfort. It's all designed to serve you. When you feel it, oh no, I won't eat. I'm hungrier for God. And devote yourself to pray in that moment. Now, I do want to address for two minutes something some some of you might be protesting and say but jesus pastor or sorry well i'm not jesus but pastor scott jesus says (laughs) jesus says that you're to fast in secret that nobody else is supposed to know that you fast and i would challenge you to say that's not what he said he said if you fast for the attention of others to promote yourself as godly do it in secret but almost every fast that we find in scripture The group of people did it together. So if you are prone to pride or ego, and you're like, I'm going to fast because I want to test my own willpower and I want everybody to think I'm godly. Don't let anybody else know because you're not supposed to do it that way. Do it in secret. God who sees in secret will reward you. That was the two minutes. Either way, whatever it is, I want you and I'm asking you to join with (laughs) me in this 21 days of dedicating ourselves to hunger for God, for this God-centered purpose of pursuing Him. Now, to help you uh, in these 21 days, each week you're going to receive a seven-day prayer guide that accompanies the hunger for God. And it's revolving around our mission. So this first week, we're going to join together in praying in our love for God, every day is a one word or a one sentence prayer. And I'm not saying that's all you should pray that day, but it might prompt you to start. And there's a passage of Scripture to accompany it. I don't know how I'm going to do. This. I'm going to try to do something on Facebook each day for us. If you want to follow us on Facebook, there's a video or a post or something to share this with you. But whatever it is, I'm still trying to figure that out. But it starts tomorrow. And we'll continue to do this until the end of January 28th when we have that night of worship. Now, you have this guide to guide you in your prayer. I also want to encourage you to attend the Overflow Prayer Gatherings. They start back tomorrow night in here uh, at, at, at 6.30 p.m. And, and they're going to be uh, using this as a prompt to uh, dive deeper into prayer as well. So so maybe you can't commit to attending every week for the next seven years, but maybe you can commit to attending the next three Mondays, joining together in prayer for this. I've also tried to do what I can for those of you who are um, wanting to do a bit more intense prayer. um, Out on the information kiosk is is a prayer guide that we provide for all of our new members because we challenge all of our new members to pray every day for our church family So if you want more specific guidance on on prayer for our church family, you can go pick that up at the info kiosk. Another thing that I put together uh, is something called a strategic prayer guide. It is out on the kiosk as well. If you're wanting to spend a lot more time in prayer, uh, a way you can do that is to structure it with the word pray. Praise, regret, ask, and yield. And that kind of structures the prayer time. So so you can have uh, kind of some prompts of what to pray for. There's scripture throughout that you can use in that section or that time of praise. Same with regret. And then when you get to asking for things, things that you can ask for with, with a, a scriptural guide for that. And then yielding, submitting ourselves over to him. All of that is out on the info kiosk for your, uh, for your joy in Christ. So with this, I, I just want to ask that we all bow our heads. Close our eyes. I just want to ask, how many of you have been convicted this morning that your hunger for God has waned and it's not as fiery and warm and bright as it once was? If that's you, I would just ask that you would just gently raise your hand. Nobody else is looking. I just want to see. Praise God. You're not alone. We're all in a same boat. And so I want to also ask, uh, by show of hands, how many of you, with your eyes closed, your head bowed, how many of you are planning to dedicate yourself in some specific way in the next 21 days to hunger for God in this season of fasting and prayer for the Lord? If you would just raise your hand and say, wow. Wow. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Christ, we love you because you first loved us. And we praise you that you have um, what it seems like sparked a new thing this morning. Um, Something that you've done that we've only asked for and only you can do. And I, I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would hear the cries of our hearts. That you would awaken in us or reawaken in us a deep hunger for you that would quench all of the cravings for worldly things that have disrupted and jammed us too full and kept us distracted from our pursuit and hungering for you. God, I pray that you would meet with us in these next 21 days in in a revival way, in a powerful way, in a transformative way, where we are all hungering and thirsting and longing for you in a new, fresh way, awaken in us a new sense of craving for you, longing for you, loving you above all else. We repent, we're sorry for how we have allowed so many things to come in and pull at our hearts that we had originally given to you. God, would you awaken in us an unquenchable, fiery hunger that burns all of our other consuming cares, that causes us to invest in the things of eternal value that we would see you do among us. We don't believe the next 21 days is a quick fix. We just want you, God. So we'll set ourselves to know and follow, to hunger and thirst hard after you. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you guys would stand, I'd love to, I pray a prayer of benediction over you. I would also encourage you um, for the next 21 days, I love how much our church loves to do life together. And that means you may send an invite for a meal. Uh, I would say today, go feast like crazy, right? Uh, But for the next 21 days after, kind of be keeping in mind that our church family might be in fast. And if you aren't and they are, and you give an invite, hey, I'd love to have you over for a meal. And they just simply say, actually, I can't do it now. Can we wait till later? Don't read into it. They still love you, right? Um, But just kind of keep that in mind. Uh, I don't know if we have refreshments back there. The fast doesn't start today. It starts tomorrow. So if there is no refreshments back there, that's our bad. I'm sorry. Um, But we love you. Let me pray a prayer of benediction over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, his presence among you and give you peace both now and in the world to come. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Let us hunger for God. Love you guys.